What's up, everybody? This is Dr. Andy Wilzak. This week, I am talking to Dr. Aaron Carnes from the Department of Criminology and Criminal Justice at the University of Alabama about her research on terrorism. This is Episode 8 of Untenured Tracks. Um, so I'm a criminologist by training, though really my work and the way that I approach the various problems that I try to address is from a multidisciplinary uh, perspective. I'm broadly interested in terrorism and counterterrorism in actual practice, um, as well as how media represent and often misrepresent both terrorism and counterterrorism, and then how that influences public perceptions of these problems. Okay, so um, let's let's start there then. Um, what what do you what do you mean when you say misperceptions of terrorism? Sure. So I, one of the things that um, I've been spending quite a bit of time in the last couple of years looking at is how news media represent and cover terrorism when it occurs, specifically here in the United States. And mm-hmm. um, this is something that you know. You would expect, um, just sort of thinking about it, you know, terrorism is something that is going to grab attention, something that media should be covering and should be covering with sort of relative equality, I guess, across attacks. Um, And that's not something that we've actually seen at all. Okay. So what have we seen? Um, So looking at print media coverage only, because that's, frankly, the easiest to actually collect in a reasonable and systematic way um, of U.S. terrorist attacks over 10 years, uh, what we found is that some of the things you'd expect, when there's more fatalities, you're going to get more news coverage. Mm -hmm. When the perpetrator is actually arrested, you're going to get more news coverage because they're, you know, in part because they go through the criminal justice system. Um, when an attack is against law enforcement or the government, you get more coverage, perhaps because it's very clearly, you know, quote unquote, terrorism, um, it's attacking the state, etc. But the thing that we saw was sort of the largest driver of coverage is whether or not the perpetrator is Muslim. Mm-hmm. So controlling for a bunch of other different factors, when the perpetrator is Muslim, we see about four and a half times more uh, actual quantity of coverage. So it signifies or suggests that Muslim perpetrated attacks are far more common in the U.S. than they actually are. Mm -hmm. And then actually diving into how that coverage describes attacks. In the last couple of years, there's been this discussion about, you know, is it terrorism or mental illness? And you've probably seen, you know, the family guy picture where Peter's holding up the, you know, the skin tone. Mm -hmm. And this has been sort of the discussion, you know, the, the darker someone's skin tone, the more likely it's to be called terrorism in media, the lighter the skin tone, the more likely it's to be attributed to mental illness. And what we found is that, yeah, when the perpetrator is Muslim, similarly, those um, articles are more likely to mention terrorism. But what we don't see, what we didn't find is that when the perpetrator is white, it doesn't influence whether or not there's references to mental illness. Um, It's actually whether or not the person has a diagnosed or suspected mental illness 
is the largest driver of whether or not that is perhaps reasonably discussed in in media coverage. So how far back does your research go? So just for the sake of people listening to this in the future, we are recording this on September 10th. Um, There's been lots of talks about this year's uh, anniversary of the September 11th terrorist attacks. I think for a lot of people, that was really the first terrorist attack in American history, though obviously it wasn't. So when you're talking about this this Muslim bias in um, perceptions of terrorism, are you going as far back as 9-11 or are you going back even further than that or so we're not in our research we went back to 2006 um and the reason for that is because we're collecting newspaper articles via online um online like repositories yeah repositories um there is sort of that that time constraint because of the uptick in internet usage and online news and people using their phones, uh, mm-hmm. having phones that even have internet capability. So mm-hmm. we didn't go as far back as 2001 or prior to that for fear that that would bias results, not in terms of how media were actually covering these events or not, but in terms of just the sheer availability or lack of ava- availability of um, as much news coverage before sort of the internet age. Okay. And, and, I think it's probably also safe to say, well, maybe that five years out from the event too, that you would think that a lot of nine 11 based coverage would have kind of ceased by that point. Right. You know, that's, I mean, it's ultimately an empirical question, right? We didn't actually, because we were looking at specific attacks, but I will say this is anecdotal and I don't have, didn't look at the numbers on this, but really diving into the coverage that occurred between 2006 and 2015, Mm-hmm. Um, there, you know, in, in a number of the attacks, particularly attacks that were either particularly lethal or with a Muslim perpetrator, there was reference in those attacks to September 11th. Okay. Um, but it, they weren't articles specifically about September 11th. We would have excluded those from our, from our studies. Okay. Um, so are there any other sorts of, of misconceptions that you come across in the research? Or that, or that people might have about terrorism that, that you're here to say that, well, actually, this isn't really how it works? <laughs> yeah, so the other one that I've done some research on, um, and this is something that, you know, after after really any attack, if you're looking particularly, I think, at cable news, the banner at the bottom is, you know, who is responsible? And, you know, particularly in the last handful of years, ISIS claims, cre- ISIS claims credit for just about everything, right? Mm-hmm. There's this expectation, and there has been for a really long time, that groups who perpetrate terrorism will claim credit for it because they're trying to send some sort of a message either to competitors, to government, to the broader population, that where they have to claim credit for that message to be transmitted. Uh, when we look at the data, the frequency of claiming has been decreasing over the last handful of decades in the last since about in the last 20 years or so, only roughly 13-14% of terrorist attacks globally have been credibly claimed by a group that would have perpetrated it. Another 40% or so of attacks um, have not been claimed, but we have reasonable evidence to attribute that attack to a particular group. So why why is that? Why has there been such a decrease in, in claims? Because it just seems... <laughs> Counterintuitive, right? I mean, counterintuitive, right? <laughs> um, so, I mean, the decrease in claims—it is possible 
that it's not that the claims themselves, the percentage of attacks that are claimed has been decreasing, but that as we've been paying more attention to terrorism, as there's been you know, broader access to news media, that there are more low-level attacks that are being reported and counted in things like the Global Terrorism Database mm-hmm. that were so, are so minor, you know, no fatalities, no injuries, so minor that it wouldn't have even sort of been included, say, in 1975, but mm-hmm. it is included in 2005 because there's there's you know, someone there to see it and report it, potentially. Um, I think a more interesting question in some ways is why would you commit a terrorist attack and not claim credit for it? Yeah. And then how do we try to, you know, what, what sort of factors about the situation, about the attack might impact whether or not people claim credit? So that's really interesting, right? Because the idea of of making an attack and then not taking credit for it, like my first reaction was that that's so counterintuitive because the whole point of this type of political violence is to say like, this is our message. This is why we're so mad at you. And this is what we want to try to terrorize you into changing. And so to not take credit for it, I'm just, I'm trying to think from that perspective of like, what, what would that accomplish? Like, how does, how does confusing the government, but that's already like really prone to confusion (laughs) already. Like how does, how does that serve your interests? And I, so, I mean, so in a theoretical article I wrote a while back now, actually, uh, we're looking sort of at what these potential reasons could be and mm-hmm. how they can still be what we would call like a logical, rational decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, one of one of the potential explanations is groups that are is sort of it's not that they're not claiming credit for their own attack. It's that they're falsely claiming credit for someone else's attack. And we see this. I mean, we saw this with ISIS claiming credit for the Las Vegas shooting. They had no, there was no connection there, but they had something to benefit from claiming credit for something they didn't do because it would, you know, spread fear. It makes people in the United States think, you know, if, if an ISIS operative is able to carry out this, carry this out here in the U.S., you know, a lot of sort of the, the fear um, and the reactionary perhaps policies or decisions, which only furthers their goal. So that's potentially one reason. Mm-hmm. Um, there are, and I, you know, I use this term, I guess, with a little bit of hesitancy because of, you know, how much Alex Jones has hyped it up. Um, but the idea of a false flag attack, the idea that you, you commit an attack, but do it in such a way that it credibly looks like your opponent did it. Now, this is something where this is not in any way referring to all of the myriad different attacks where, you know, Alex Jones and his ilk are false flag, false flag, inside job. Not at all what I'm saying. Uh, but there are occasional rare instances where, you know, where terrorism is used. Um, I mean, the most sort of clear that, that I can think of is, you know, back in 1978 or so in Iran, the, um, what are, you know, the Islamic extremists who, are, who have been in power now, um, perpetrated or likely perpetrated an attack on a cinema, killing hundreds and hundreds of people. But they did it in such a way that it looked as if the Pahlavi regime was responsible. And this was one of the catalysts leading to the revolution. So they were able to successfully do it. Um, sometimes you just simply don't claim, I don't know, because, because you messed up, because you're fear, you know, afraid of backlash from the public, from the government. Um, it, 
whatever, you know, one of your agents engaged in terrorism in a way that wasn't sanctioned by, by leadership or, you know, there's a, sort of a number of ways that could potentially play out. Mm-hmm. So I, I wouldn't worry about uh, there being too much of an overlap between the InfoWars audience and on, on, on your tracks. I, I, I think I we can criticize Alex Jones that. as much as we want to here. <laughs> I wouldn't worry about it either, but I want to make it extremely clear that that's not what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, okay, so you had used this word that I, I have never really heard ref- like used before in, in discussions of terrorism, especially not in like popular media. Um, so you referred to competitors. And yeah. I think that there are probably people listening to this to whom that was probably a shocking thing to hear that there there's not this unified front of just you know the evil league of evil <laughs> out there plotting and scheming ways to to destroy america and they all hate our freedoms and and so could you talk for a second about like what that looks like in real life as competing competing terrorist organizations yeah oh absolutely and this is i mean this is actually a hugely um, a huge thing that we don't think about, though it certainly you know exists here in the United States as well. So I mean, I'll use a domestic example. So say that you are a far right extremist and you have some you know you have some white nationalist views, you have some anti government views. Um, there are a number of different organizations, groups, ideologies that all sort of have that same general overarching umbrella of views, and they are many of them sort of vying for membership. Mm-hmm. They want to have more, you know, increase their ranks. And when there's, this, and this is typically with, with groups that have similar ideologies um, and similar goals, but are distinct groups. We also saw this, um, you know, in, in places like Syria over the last handful of years, where there were a number of, of groups that had sort of similar goals that are competing with each other, forming alliances, breaking their alliances, splintering, getting back together. And it, it, the, the, sort of the landscape there is frankly so complex that not being a regional specialist, I can't go into the particulars on this. Um, you know, there's great work that's been written on that by people like uh, Trisha Bacon. Um, but it's something that we see, you know, we see quite a bit that there's competition among groups. Um particularly when they're operating in the same geographic time and space when they have similar ideologies and similar goals. Okay. Um, how do you talk about this to your students who I, I think come in with just uh, a lot of baggage yeah. <laughs> and, and biases about this? So how do you, how do you broach these subjects in the classroom? Um, so from a really neutral standpoint, um, I make it very, very explicitly clear that everything that we're discussing in the class is what we know from data and from empirical evidence. Um, and when we branch beyond that or when I'm speculating of what something might be, it is informed by what we know. But I'm very clear to say, like, this is speculation. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of it is sort of deconstructing, deconstructing the perceptions that they reasonably have because they're people in the universe who don't specialize in this topic, who get their information from news and entertainment media primarily. Um, and there's also just the, un, you know, the necessity of really breaking down any of the potential, you know, partisan bickering that can happen around this. 
Um, the way that I do that is to start with the, you know, the presumption that we all are interested in making the country safer. And the best way to do that is to look at what data and evidence show. Um, and that's sometimes going to conflict with your political views, whatever your political views are. And like their jobs and all of our jobs is to sort of update our views, right, with new information and think about how can we move, you know, move the ball on this together versus bickering, which really is counterproductive. Mm-hmm. Are there like constant or consistent myths that you you find yourself having to to bust in the classroom? Um, I mean, I think there's a lot of myths that yes, that you have to bust. It's probably going to get even only more difficult as as time goes on because you know students today for the most part have absolutely you know no memory pre nine eleven, um, have no conception of the long history of terrorism, even though we don't always call it terrorism in the U.S. So the biggest myth is just really deconstructing what terrorism is and isn't, defining the acts and showing that throughout history, really whatever your ideology, your religion, your views, your whatever, someone has perverted that and used that to justify violence. I mean, there are, are, there are people who engage in terrorism under the auspices of some, you know, very, extreme interpretations of Buddhism, which makes, I mean, just on the face makes no sense. So it's really going sort of at that. And then that a lot of what they know about counterterrorism is likely also not correct. Okay. So could you talk about that a little bit? Um, Cause I, I can imagine, you know, all the sorts of prejudicial things that they might come in and with, and with regard to why terrorism happens, but I guess I've never personally given much thought to what counterterrorism myths look like. I spent a lot of time correcting students on like, you know, I've always wanted to be a cop. I've wanted to be a cop since I was five. And I think it's going to be all car chases and gunfights and stuff like that. Or, or, you know, my, my personal favorite and probably one you've heard a lot too, is I want to be a profiler. Oh, that one. <laughs> like, well, <laughs> you have a better chance of getting cast on a TV show playing a profiler than actually being a profiler. <laughs> right. And the actual job isn't as it exists on TV. But yeah, I think a lot of this comes from the TV myths, right? Mm-hmm. So a few of the things that is, you know, the difficulty to deconstruct um, and the myths about counterterrorism, I mean, I think that the there's a few. So the idea that we should be like profiling goes back to the assumption that we know that there's like one type of terrorist and there's anything we know. It's that basically any demographic can commit this kind of violence. So any form of profiling is absolutely inaccurate, a waste of time and super counterproductive. And we see this as it's, you know, most often there has been, applied to Muslim populations in the United States, this only makes people less likely to want to cooperate with police to report any crime. It makes us less safe. Um, one of the other ones, you know, myths that I think is really important is that, you know, that find, catching perpetrators of terrorism or busting up potential, you know, potential plots is not something that is like a, you know, SEAL Team 6 in the United States TV depiction of how this happens. It tends to be, you know, regular police officers doing their jobs and pulling over, I think it was McVeigh, who was pulled over for having an expired tag on his car. 
mm-hmm. and happened to be in law enforcement custody when there was like his picture when he was identified as a picture on um on the news the timothy timothy mcveigh story i i mean i i don't want to say that i love teaching it but it's like of all the stories it's one that i find really helpful because he was so dumb (laughs) you know and and getting and getting pulled over for expired tags or no license plate and he had a gun on him and the the trooper just happened to see the gun and like (laughs) then he's just chilling out in his cell and the fbi has to you know set a land speed record to get to whatever this little one horse town was where they've gotten mcveigh locked up and just happened to get there right before he's about to release be released it's incredible you know yeah i mean those those stories aren't particularly unique um the first world trade center bombing back in 93 they you know that they had rented up with rider van or some you know some rented vans filled with explosives and then one of the perpetrators went back and tried to get his deposit back without the van and you're like <laughs> Are you kidding? <laughs> so there is that. These are the, the people who are proof against violence aren't these like genius, brilliant masterminds. Um, in the way that they're, you know, that they're portrayed to be sometimes or discussed in media. Um, you know, certainly some of the leaders and masterminds are quite bright, but this is not some you know elite super geniuses that are perpetrating violence that we can't possibly thwart mm-hmm. um i think the last the last myth that i think is you know well it's not the last but the last one i'll talk about right now is the the notion that torture is a, an effective and necessary evil in gathering information when in reality that's just absolutely not the case right because people will, will admit to anything mm-hmm. if you, if you yeah. torture them long enough yeah, we'll admit to anything. We'll give false information. It scrambles people's cognitive ability to actually give any potentially useful information. Arguably, it makes us less safe. It can help to recruit. There's a number of reasons why it's you know legally, morally, ethically, effic- you know, efficaciously not a good idea. Mm-hmm. So I got to ask, what what was about terrorism as a topic that drew you to it professionally? So I could tell you, and this is true, 9-11 was my freshman year of college, and I was a political science and psychology major, so it all just made sense. And that's a very pretty story that's completely a lie. I didn't, I don't think I even realized that terrorism was a thing you could study um, until I was in grad school, and I took time off between undergrad and grad school, so we're talking around about 2010 at that point. Um, It's not even what I had actually gone into my PhD thinking that I wanted to study, um, but it very quickly realized that what I thought I wanted to study, I in fact did not want to study, Um, and terrorism, counterterrorism was something that was interesting really diving into some of the scholarship on it. I found a lot of sort of fascinating puzzles that have not yet been addressed. And it was a good, you know, a good way to blend my background in political science, psychology, criminology, and public policy all into one, one topic with a multidisciplinary approach. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very cool. I was also in college 
and a political science major on 9-11. And I, I recount that story. Um, I told it to my, my Social 101 students just a couple of days ago um, to try to gauge, like, you know, so I, I was teaching them about the sociological imagination and how your your perspective on things is shaped by the era that you live in. And I like to tell them that they they have never known peacetime, <laughs> that they have only ever grown up in war, and that I remember, you know, the halcyon days of the Clinton administration, and and there's no, you know, unending war. And they kind of sit there and are like, huh. Um, so, and, I, and terrorism as a topic, like, I had never... I remember studying for my prelim exams at Bowling Green, and there was a question on there about why does terrorism happen? And having this, like, eureka moment at 3 o'clock in the morning that, oh, it's all learning theory. <laughs> and just... And, and going with that. But but since then, it's not something that that I, I've even heard, like, students talk about. And I have a lot of students who want to go into law enforcement, but it's it's kind of surprising, I guess, that I don't have a lot who who want to go and, and sort of be like, I don't know, this is an old reference at this point, but like not a lot of want to be Jack Bowers. <laughs> right. Um, and I think they, they, I see that more, but also they're selecting into taking my classes or coming to talk to me in my office hours. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's, it's a good point though, about never knowing peacetime. And I think that's something that, that any of us will struggle with going forward is really, you know, I've now taught the last cohort who has any faint recognition or memory of what, you know, what, what, what the world was like pre nine 11. Um, and just simple things, you know, that I, some, a couple of years ago, I brought up about how we, how we used to be able to go all the way to the gate to like, you know, see somebody off when they were flying. And they just kind of gave me this look like, like it was just so, they're, Oh, we thought that was only on movie in movies. Like, no, no, it's a thing we used to be able to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, just how much the world has changed in ways that we probably don't fully even remember, you know, you and I being in college when this, when this occurred, because we didn't obviously have fully formed views of the world at that point in time, despite what we might have thought. So on, on that day, um, I, <laughs> the class that I had immediately after like the second tower came down was ironically a politics of the middle east course and i forget the instructor's name um he was very deep into his career at that point we'll say had been had studied has had lived a long time um in different parts of the middle east and so i, I went to class out of like force of habit i guess um and he he proceeded to give this lecture about how the world was ending <laughs> which was the least risk, like the worst possible thing that you could do to this room full of terrified college students in on a college campus that had the largest uh, Middle Eastern population in the world outside of the Middle East um, in Southeast Michigan. And so <laughs> I remember him sitting there throwing his hands up in the air, like the world is ending. The world as we know it is over. Everything is changing now. And while I think that was, like the worst possible thing that he could have ever done. <laughs> he was kind of right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, as much yeah. as I hate to admit it, the crazy, crazy old guy was right. Like there's no, there's no going back to how it was. Right. I mean, I think it, it that's as you're saying, it's like, you know, he's not 
totally wrong. Um, and I think that this is, you know, something that, you know, certainly like the field of studying terrorism as it currently exists is a product of that is a price. You know, there, there were people studying, there have been people who studied terrorism for, for decades uh, prior to nine 11, but it was a much smaller, much more niche topic within you know, political science or psychology, sociology, anthropology that was not anything remotely close to close to what it is today in terms of, you know, the numbers, the funding, um, the perspectives. And that's, you know, that's absolutely a reaction to, to 9-11 and then the subsequent messes that have been made since. <laughs> Put it very <laughs> politely. Um, <laughs> Uh, also recording on the day when when John Bolton has thankfully <laughs> mercifully resigned or been fired, unclear. Um, but thankfully he's out and can't cause any more trouble. Um, so we we have fallen into a trap that I think happens a lot in criminology, which is that our topics are very interesting but also very sad <laughs> and, yeah. and very depressing. And I don't want to end this on a sad and depressing note. So we need to find. <laughs> We need to find something, something positive to leave the people with. So I think a positive thing to leave the people with is that despite how much you see terrorism and counterterrorism in TV shows, because it's, I mean, frankly, it's, it's interesting. It gets eyeballs. It's, you know, it's thrilling and it's quote unquote sexy and all of that in terms of the production value. As much as you see terrorism covered in the news it's actually an incredibly, incredibly rare occurrence here in the United States. Uh, we're talking, you know, a few dozen attacks on average in any given year. Most of those have no fatalities. You know, you're more likely to die doing just about anything else. So it's not something that is sort of this existential threat in the way that or it's not an existential threat to you and your family's you know, physical well-being and lives. Um, as it's perhaps portrayed to be because it's so it's everywhere in media. And you mean a few dozen attacks worldwide in, on the, United you, on States. in the United States in the continental United States in the, yeah, in the United States. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. But most of them are things that don't even register and don't get covered. Okay. It's, it's like, it's things that count as attacks, but it's something like the you know, earth liberation front, uh, um, burning down a new housing development that tore down a forest. Okay, so I I just fell into a a dumb trap, right? That every intro student falls into, like not like. So, so I was writing about COINTELPRO today for a, a book chapter I'm working on, and and just seeing like uh, Jagger Hoover says everything might be communist, so everything is the enemy. Um, <laughs> so it's like a similar thing. But it's not a dumb trap at all because it's not covered in the media and you haven't spent the last decade-ish in-depthly studying it. So, of course, you're not going to know this. Um, but I think that's that's the point, though, is that, you know, that these attacks tend to be much lower-level things that aren't even blips on the radar, um, that the, you know, the, the higher-profile attacks or the higher fatalities are quite rare. Mm-hmm. Good. But we have something good to leave the people with. So it's hard with this topic. It really is, but very interesting and very, very vitally important for people to talk about. So thank you so much for your time, Erin. Yeah, thank you.